Uh, if you've got your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to continue where we left off last week. Today, more than ever, this word love, which we started talking about, is a word that is very vague. It's overused. It's a term that goes in and out of people's mouths. We employ it in so many different ways in our culture. I love Jesus. I love my wife. I love my children. I love this church. I love music. I love reading. I love the quiet when the kids are finally sleeping. I love Brazilian food. I love ceviche. I love all of these things. I love good humor. I love, I love, I love. And in all of these statements, love isn't necessarily used all in the same way. It's not defined exactly in the same way. And if we can recall to last week, when we looked at the first three verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, if you weren't here, let me just give you the synopsis. Bottom line, in those few verses, Paul says that nothing matters apart from love. See, we need to understand what Paul meant by the word love if we are to actually fulfill it and work it and do it and, and, and live in the way that he's calling us to live. For if we don't, we risk thinking that we've got it right. And then when we stand before God one day, he says, you have nothing. You got it right in your head, but you are actually wrong in working it out. And I don't know about you, but that terrifies me. I don't want to stand before God thinking that I have, you know, achieved something or done something. And I'm going to hear the words coming out of his lips saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. And yet instead I hear the words, depart from me, I never knew you. So Paul talks about how love is the anchor. It's what marks us. That's what we were talking about last week. And apart from love, Nothing matters. Have you ever seen light passing through a prism? Maybe in science class and in school, you've, you've gone through that experience. And when light, white light, it shines right through a prism, a prism, that prism acts as a catalyst and it actually separates out the various colors that's found within that white light. See, all along, the colors are there. They're present. All along, the colors are working together to make what is known as white light. And it's always there. But that prism acts as something that separates it out and allows you to understand the component parts. Today, I want us to look at this next couple of verses and put love through a prism. I want to put love through a prism and find out its component parts. I want us to take a look at this word because as you're going to shortly see Paul describes love not so much as an emotion and a feeling and some of us we read chapter 13 we say yeah that's a love chapter I know what it's all about and some of us we feel like we're off the hook because hey I don't have a honey and I'm not married yet and so uh, this is not talking to me I'm not in the marriage covenant, and so therefore, uh, it's not for me. Some of you students, you know, oh, this is for one day later on. I'll check in on this after the fact. 
And maybe some of you guys have heard this uh, passage in the context of a wedding and, and a wedding ceremony. Maybe it was this text was read at your wedding ceremony, which is no, no big deal. It's, it's not a bad thing, okay? It can apply to that context. But Paul is, is speaking within a different context that's a lot more broader. And um, if you look at the words that he uses, you're going to quickly find out that love is way more than a warm feeling, but rather it's a conscious decision to love other people no matter what. He breaks it down into a series of verbs. We all read the Bible here in English, and some of you might read it in other languages, but uh, our translations have used the words here and, and made them into adjectives or adverbs, um, but if you look at the original Greek language, these words that describe the component parts of love were all verbs. And I believe that's absolutely critical. The love Paul is talking about is not primarily something that you feel, but it is something that you do. What love does. We may not always be able to control our feelings. Somebody say amen. But we can control our actions. And even to some extent, we can control our motivations. Love is something that you choose to do. And God measures your entire life by it. So let's jump into our text. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all all things. Father, we thank you for this very practical description. I thank you that it's in here because I know I often get it wrong. I pray that your Holy Spirit would encamp his presence around us today and speak your truth in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. What does love do? It's important for us to define these words because we might be thinking when we read this that this applies to somebody else. But love reaches into every heart and every life. Love, first and foremost, acts patiently. Love is patient. Isn't it interesting, the very first verb that Paul chooses to use, the very first word that he's bringing to our attention is the word that focuses on the act of patience. The word here means to bear unwearingly with other people's faults and offenses, to be long-suffering. Paul gets going hot and heavy. He just starts off, let's make this, not, let's not sugarcoat this, let's not set the bar super low, let's start off with the hardest one of all, let's make it. Love is patient. Here's how love acts it bears with another, not because of who they are, but in spite of who they are. In spite of who they are. In spite of what they have done to you. In spite of what they may do to you. Love is patient. Had a more patient attitude reigned in the city of Corinth, then maybe brothers and sisters would not be feeling so defrauded as you look in Acts chapter 
I'm sorry, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 7 through 8. Maybe if love had been more patient, these brothers and sisters would not be taking each other to the Gentile courts and suing one another. Maybe if love had been more patient, they would not be demonstrated before all the people who did not know the Lord, who are supposed to look on the people who do know the Lord, and witnessing from them a demonstration that is devoid of love. Maybe if in Corinth there was more patience, there would have been a different outcome. See, love understands the frailties of human nature and it refuses to take offense. It goes and it sees the potential in people, no matter how people are behaving and how people have acted, and it chooses not to demand an instant maturity or growth. Hello. Sometimes we look at somebody and we say, I, I demand that you, hey, you just started your walk with Jesus. You just, you know, learn this truth or this understanding. And I demand that you become this level and caliber of person and operate in this level of, of maturity where, hello, there's a process. Last time I checked, Jesus says, I want you to become fishers of men, not cleaners of fish. I want you to share the good news and love the other person and allow the Lord to work on their heart. Be patient. I got it. I was, I was hearing somebody preach one day. They were asking the pastor, hey, pastor, uh, if I accept Jesus, do I need to uh, stop smoking pot? And then the pastor said, um, no. He's like, wait, hold on. Did you, do you understand what the word pot means? I mean, like, if I accept Jesus Christ and choose to follow him, do I have to stop smoking marijuana and the pastor looked at him and said no he's like wait i'm so confused he's like well instead of you being concerned about what you need to stop doing and stop being and start stop stop living can you start considering who you are called to be in relationship with can you get around jesus christ and as you get to know his word and as you get to know him and as you come into the fold and you allow his holy spirit to take hold of your life and you allow him to move upon your heart that you will start to be realigned to his desires and to his will and to his word and to his promises by which you will then say yourself i do not desire to do this and be this but yet we look at people and say you just heard about the word of the lord you just heard about the faith you just read your bible for the very first time i demand you to be a saint like the apostle paul i'm not saying that this is licensed for us to do what is wrong but when i look at the scriptures paul is saying love acts patiently we need to allow time for process all right? It's not a license to do wrong, but it is a paradigm shift in us acting in a way that chooses to champion the other person. One of Abraham Lincoln's most outspoken, outspoken political enemies was a name by the Edwin J. Stanton. Stanton used to call Lincoln a low cunning clown, the original gorilla. He actually said, it is astounding to me that people would go to a zoo to look at a gorilla when they could just go to Springfield, Illinois and see one. Imagine that. Imagine someone being so vocal and outspoken and against you and ridiculing you in such a way. But to Lincoln's credit, this is what he did. He never responded to these insults. Because he was a man who tried to see the very best in every person, he was patient. And in fact, when he was elected president, Lincoln chose Stanton to become his secretary of war. And when he was asked, why did you choose this man who's ridiculed you, called you a gorilla, and done all these different things? Why did you choose him? And the president simply said, because he is the greatest for the position. 
He is the greatest. He is the best man. Later, when Lincoln was assassinated, Stanton stood by his coffin, and with tears in his eyes, he said, there lies the greatest ruler of men the world has ever seen. Man, what, what does patience do? It could change the hardest of men. Second Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but in everyone to come to repentance. My question this morning, church, is how is your patience? How's your patience? How are you behaving patiently with those that are around you? I know it's a tall order. It is a tall order. How does love act? Love acts patiently, but all on top of that, love acts kindly. Love is patient and kind. The word kind is very often connected with patience. People, you know, if you stop and look at this word, world, it's not really a kind place. There's a lot of hurtful things that are said, a lot of hurtful actions that are perpetrated. Therefore, the stage is perfectly set for the word kindness to show up on the scene. Gordon Fee, a former theologian, used to say, kindness is the more active counterpart to patience. It has to do with the reaching out through deeds that demonstrate compassion and mercy. And I praise God that he is described as being both patient and kind. Somebody say amen. In Romans 2, verse 4, Paul speaks of God's kindness, his tolerance, his patience, and he shows us how it is God's patience and kindness that leads us towards repentance. Sometimes just holding, you know, the door open could make a big difference in someone's life. And the reason I bring that up is because we sometimes look at the word kindness and we associate what God has done and something massive on a grand scale. And we think it's so complex and so major, but kindness is actually pretty simple. The act of kindness is something that is absolutely simple. It is not as hard as we think it is. It's, it's pretty clear. What it does take, though, is intentionality. It might not be difficult, but it just takes intention. And that's what Paul's talking about here, is caring enough to intentionally be kind. Sometimes just a word is enough. Proverbs 12, 25 says, an anxious heart weighs a man down, but a kind word cheers him up. Sometimes a word, sometimes holding the door, sometimes just giving up your spot in line, sometimes just recognizing that every single person is carrying a heavy load, that is enough kindness that will change and melt a heart. And how many of you can remember an act of kindness? Can remember an act of love? That was just, it just, it, it, it tore down barriers. It opened up a new possibility. It, it walked you and changed and completely, you know, uh, transported you from one mindset to the other. An act of kindness, as simple as it is, has a power to do some incredible things. It is powerful medicine in a world that is full of hate and hurt. It won't be easily forgotten. Love is patient. It acts patiently. It acts kindly. Love acts in a way that is not envious. Love does not act enviously. We need to understand what love looks like and what it does because we don't want to be 
labeled as men and women who never did it, who never experienced it, who never modeled it. Verse 4, love does not envy. The Corinthian congregation was very, very good at showing envy. They were being eaten away by envy, by its destructive power and influence. They were envious and jealous of their neighbors. Paul alludes here to Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3, where he mentioned jealousy and quarreling was something that was marking them and keeping them still worldly. These were men and women who were very envious of each other. They envied each other's spiritual gifts. They envied each other's social statuses. They envied each other's resources. They envied each other's ability to come into the court systems and and actually work out things in their favor. They envied each other in so many different ways. And as a result, they were treating each other in wrongful ways. Consider how, if we look beyond Corinthians and the church at Corinth, it was envy. That put Joseph in the pit. It was envy that put Daniel in the lion's den. It was envy from the Pharisees and religious religious rulers that put Jesus Christ on a cross. Envy has led many a person down a terrible road. And sadly, envy still poisons many people today. And I say poison because this is what the word says. A heart of peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Now, did you know that you can't love somebody and envy them at the same time? It's not possible to love someone and envy them at the same time. Why? Because when you envy somebody, you automatically enter into a relationship of rivalry. And there is no rivalry in love. There's just unity. There is no rivalry. If you find that you are envying somebody, that envy has gripped your heart, then the the surefire way that you can overcome that is you start praying for the person you envy. As you start praying for somebody, your heart starts to change if you're praying with the right motivation. That's a sure way to drive out rivalry. Love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, but also love does not act arrogantly. Love does not boast and it is not arrogant, verse 4. If envy is desiring the world, desiring um, uh, to, to have from the world that which somebody else owns, that which somebody else has, then you know what? Boasting comes from the desire to have everybody else look at what we can do and what we have and what we've acquired. This behavior is fueled by pride. It's fueled by arrogance. Sometimes a person may boast about themselves truthfully but all more often than not we we boast and we exaggerate more often than not we we twist the truth a little bit and we go a little bit beyond the greek word means to exaggerate to display yourself to brag about yourself to literally become a windbag i've known a windbag or two i've been a windbag at times It means to act and talk in such a manner that you want to draw attention to yourself. Some people, they feel the need to always be in the center stage, don't they? They have to have the final word. They have to have the final, biggest, climactic story. They are the ones that at the end will be the last thing you remember. I've met some of these folks. But friend, you cannot boast and love 
at the same time. Because boasting focuses on yourself where love looks to others. It's just not possible. Paul, what are you talking about love? What does this mean? I see the white light. I need to shine it through a prism. Well, love acts kindly, acts patiently. It does not envy, but it does not boast. It's not arrogant. Love does not act rudely. It is not arrogant or rude, verses 4 and 5. Interesting, the word rude here is translated as unbecomingly and unseemly. One commentator catches the meaning like this. Love considers the fitness and propriety of things. It is careful of what it will touch. If it will touch a painful feeling, it is attentive to the courtesies of life. See, the point is that it is easy for us to get caught up in our own world, caught up in our own desires, caught up in the things that we want to say, the things that we want to do, that we get caught up in our own selves, that we speak and act in ways that are hurtful towards others. And that might not be easy to hear in our super individualistic culture of today. Most people take this attitude, I'll do whatever I want, and if you don't like it, tough. But here's what love does. I'll do whatever is right, and if I don't like it, tough. Love flips the script. Love acts, not rudely. We realize if I'm going to operate in the way of love, I'm going to choose to do that which ministers to another and not focus on what ministers to me, which leads into the next one where he says love does not act selfishly. It does not insist on its own way. This word speaks about seeking your own desires, your own advantage of putting yourself before somebody else. And Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, a stark contrast to what life should be like for a Christian, for a believer. Not just within the relationship and confines of a marriage, but within the context of living life with another. Being part of society. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Notice that we should not neglect ourselves. He's not saying, I want you to just look at everything that you need, everything that you desire, and say, it is wrong. And, and go and you know, beat yourself up over the fact that you'd wanted something. No, but he says, you should seek not just your own advantage, but you should seek your own advantage as long as it is not at the detriment of others. Take care of your needs, yes, but not at the detriment of others. See, love does not use people to get what it wants. Have you ever met somebody who uses people instead of loving people? They use people in order to get what they need. They love people for the reasons of what they can get out of them as opposed to using what they have to love what the people are in their lives. There is a difference. It looks outward rather than inward. It takes the attitude of Jesus not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. What is more... (laughs) um, Interesting here is if you stop and think about this in the context of marriage, because we often look at chapter 13 from that perspective, what if more marriages reflected this behavior? 
What if more relationships reflected this behavior? What if our work relationships reflected this behavior? One of the biggest complaints that you hear from people, especially married couples, is that the other spouse is selfish. Oh, I wish my spouse wasn't as selfish. Well, they're asking the same thing about me, saying the same thing about you. What if instead of focusing on our own rights within a marriage, within a relationship, we were to focus on our responsibility towards somebody else? I think that would just change drastically how we experience and dialogue and go through life. Let me move on. I'm not going to meddle in this because we could be here for a while. Love does not act resentfully. It's not irritable or resentful, verse 5. Another translation says it like this. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. That's an accounting word. The implications are both short-term and long-term. Love acts in a way that it's going to impact your short-term life and your long-term life. It's going to impact the um, um, short-term term of your relationships and in the long run of all of them. To be irritable means to be easily provoked. Now understand this. We all have certain buttons that get pressed. Amen? We've all got certain buttons that when they're pressed, we're going to react in an unloving manner. I've got a button, I've got some buttons that if you press them, they're going to probably require that I give you an apology. It's going to happen, all right? I'm not going to tell you them because I don't want you to test me. But you know, you've got them. Push those buttons on the wrong day and then you're going to have to go and retract some words and smooth over some actions. But some people, it's not just about having these buttons, some people are covered in buttons. They're covered in these buttons. And they seem to take special pride in polishing the buttons and calibrating the buttons so that when you come and you just walk by it, you don't even touch the button, but the wind of you walking by triggers and sets it off. The slightest thing would set them away. And Paul says, that's not love, guys. Love doesn't do that. That's the short term. Blowing up on somebody when they push our buttons, when it's a bad day and things are not going our way and we're having a difficult... Remember, all of us are carrying heavy loads. Yes, absolutely. And so things can happen. But in the long term, Here's where others struggle. Some people, especially in marriages, relationships, they struggle in the long term of this aspect where love is supposed to keep no record of wrongs. It's not supposed to be resentful. This is the slow burn decision to choose to hold on to bitterness, to hold on to resentment, not allowing forgiveness to reign and flourish. The word Paul uses here literally is to count the evil, to credit it to somebody's account. Have you ever met people who actually write down their offenses? Man, there was one time, and at some point in my marriage, I never told you this, Nat, I'm sorry. Please, I'm in church, I ask for forgiveness. But there there was a moment, right, like that we were having conversations, and I noticed that we would talk about an issue or talk about a situation, and in the heat of the moment, when we were there talking about it, and I, I said, well, you did this, and this is what happened, and then she will, will tell me when, and then I could not think of it, but I knew for a fact that it had happened, and so I remember one time I left the conversation, and I'm like, you know what, that's what I'm going to do, I have a phone, it has a note app, you know what, I'm going to start writing down 
so that when she asks me next time, when, tell me when, I'll be like, oh yeah, here, let me tell you, on December the 5th at 10 o'clock, you said this and this is how it happened. And then immediately when I thought that, I'm like, really? I'm going to actually create a file on my phone to remember when she offended me so that I can be equipped and armed with knowledge and prove myself right. Remember what I said last week, guys? You could be right and lose a person. If we do so without love, it matters nothing. We gain nothing. And I would have lost big time if I whipped out my phone. Oh, yeah, honey, here you go. Here's the proof. I'd be sleeping on the couch regardless. Love does not keep a record of wrong. And it's sad that so many people, they go through life and they're like, this person, this is what they did to me. This is what he said to me. This is how she said it to me. It's sad when I meet in a counseling session with people and you know what, there's been a grievance, there's been a betrayal. And you know what, it's, it's, it's unfortunate where sometimes people say, you know what, well, I only did this. Let me tell you this. The person who has been transgressed gets to decide how painful the transgression was. Okay? The one that was betrayed is the one that determines the, 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 the level of pain that they experience. So don't start minimizing what somebody else feels because of how you're justifying how you behaved. Okay? They get to set the standard. But the point is this, you might have a couple who has, trans, has had a, a betrayal, a transgression in their history, and now they're working towards resolution and change and transformation, and they're working towards the process of being restored. And then one spouse will constantly whip out that list and bring out the past and hold that person's actions in front of them. What are you doing? You're not allowing forgiveness to flourish. You're not allowing change to be possible. If you want to, you know, see that person change, then you also have to give them an opportunity to demonstrate that they have. Love does not resent or keep records of wrong. You might not be writing down the list, but if you have ever blacklisted someone in your heart, if you have ever had the habit of bringing up the past, then maybe you are not practicing love, just saying. And I thank the Lord that he loves us in such a way where in Psalms 130, it says this, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. I praise God that he, he could and he has the ability. He has the books that are long enough and the server farms that are big enough with all the data that is capable to retain every bad action and every sin that I've ever committed and will commit. He could keep all of it, yet he chooses not to. I praise the Lord. Love also acts justly. Let me keep going here for the interest of time. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. When Paul says that love does not delight in evil, he means that love takes no pleasure in unrighteousness. It takes no pleasure in what is unjust. It takes no pleasure at what is wicked. Some people are just waiting to see someone else fall so that they can amass blackmail material to use against them. 
Love never rejoices when people are mistreated, when evil wins out, when God is dishonored, when God's law is disobeyed. It does not like that. Rather, it rejoices. It cries out like the psalmist, as Psalms 119, 136 says, streams of tears flow from my eyes, for your law is not obeyed. See, love is never glad when there's misfortune experienced by another person. It doesn't rejoice when they have fallen. If you find that that's the experience that you've lived within relationships with certain people, and and this might not be something that we choose to do with those that we love, but those that we're not really excited for. Maybe that colleague who got the promotion that you so desired, you're just waiting when they can finally mess up at the next presentation. You're waiting for when somebody will go ahead and advance in a negative way because that means ultimately that their downfall is imminent and maybe your promotion is also imminent. Love acts justly. What else? We'll close out with this one. There's so much, there, there's 15 things here that Paul is like, I want to make sure that you guys, if love is what matters the most, if within the context of relationships where a new commandment the Lord has given us to love God and love one another so that the world may know that we are followers of Christ, how we love each other. Paul wants to make sure that we understand what love does so that we can actually live it out, model it and experience it. He goes on, he says this, verse seven. Love acts continuously. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love always protects. The word Paul uses in the Greek is a word that is used for the word roof. So think about that, a roof over your head. What does the roof do for you in your house? It, it keeps out the elements. It, it keeps the rain and the winds at bay. It allows you to stay within the context of your home safe and covered. It provides you a protective covering. So love naturally is a byproduct um, that's going to produce in your life protection. Like a parent who protects his child. How many of you, someone comes at your kid, you're going to do whatever you need to to keep your son, your daughter protected. You're not just going to take them at their word. You're going to inquire and understand and try to figure out what happened and how it happened and how it could be avoided and what we need to learn from that experience. But love always protects. Some children may complain that my parent is overprotecting. That is love. Love says, hey, there are parameters and there are boundaries. There are things that need to be done and upheld in order for you to thrive. Love protects. Love always trusts. Always trusts. This has nothing to do with naive credulity. It has nothing to do with just being blindly trusting of things. Gordon Fee, he says it this way. Paul does not mean that love always believes the best about everything and everyone, but that love never ceases to have faith. Never ceases to have faith. And that is why it can endure. If I, every time my wife says, hey, honey, I'm leaving for work. If I hopped on, got on the phone and hired a private investigator and said, I want you to go follow her and make sure she's going to work. How long do you think I'd stay married? 
Not very long. Thanks, Andy. Absolutely. <laughs> See, I need to be able to trust and, and to be able to, to give people opportunity. Love does not believe blindly that people will always behave properly or rightly and do everything correctly, but it never ceases to have faith that that could be possible, that we will offer the opportunity. It's not about always trusting those around you who are not often worthy of such trust but it's about trusting the one who calls you to love people knowing that if we live out this love he is able in the reflection of who he is if he can rub off on the person they could actually be worthy of the trust that we give them love always hopes always hopes here again this is nothing to do with just being naive and blindly hoping in things and being optimistic always like some people are so optimistic that you're like dude do you live on earth like, I'm all about being positive. I like that. I appreciate it. But they're, like, everything you possibly say, like, this person has never had a bad day in their life. That is discouraging. Because I have problems. I have struggles. So it's, it's not about being, you know, naively optimistic. This is not about hoping for the best in those around us. It's about maintaining the hope set before us in the one to whom we have entrusted our lives and our futures. It's about being empowered by what God has already ordained to be the future. He's got a plan. He's going to fulfill his plan. It's us placing our hope in the future and risking loving those around us in spite of that future, in light of that future. God's got a plan, and he's called me to love my neighbor as myself. My neighbor will do me wrong, but in the end, if I choose to place my hope in the one who can work everything out in his plan and his seasons, I will always choose to be optimistic. Love always perseveres. Finally, he says this, love perseveres continuously. It never gives up, it never quits, it never dies, it never becomes extinct, it never goes out of fashion, it never ends. Love perseveres throughout all the challenges of life, no matter how I find myself, uh, no matter what may come, love is always there. It protects, it trusts, it hopes, it perseveres. And without this love, without behaving in these ways, without choosing to go against the ways that it does not act, then we will do everything in vain. We need this type of attitude. I'm gonna invite the team to come. Uh, very practical very, very simple message that I feel the Lord is just inviting us to contemplate and reflect on. Let's take love out of this abstract, emotional, lovey-dovey feeling of romance and within the context of a relationship type of thing. And let's apply it to the very fabric of our church, to the very fabric of our work, to the very fabric of our neighborhoods, and live it out. I was reading and I read about a college professor by the name of Johanna Catanacho. He pastors a church in Palestine, in Jerusalem. 
And this is a man who's subjected to, to lots of persecution. See, the Israeli soldiers, they often um, patrol the city looking for potential terrorists and making sure that things are not, you know, wrong or out of place. And so sometimes they impose these spontaneous curfews on the Palestinians. And honestly, these soldiers have a legal right to, to take action and use force when the Palestinians do not respond quickly enough to their summons. So this pastor, Johanna, he tried and failed to operate in love, to love his enemies, these soldiers. The Israeli soldiers randomly would do daily checks on the Palestinians and they would ask them for identification cards and sometimes they would stop them for hours. And all this just fed his anger and his frustration and, and it just fed his fear. As he confessed his inability to God, he realized something significant. Man, I'm a pastor. I should love my enemies. He realized that radical love, the radical love of Christ is not an emotion, but it's a decision. He decided to show love, however reluctantly, by sharing the gospel message with every soldier he saw on the street. With the new resolution, Johanna, he began to carry copies of a flyer with him. It was written in Hebrew and in English. And it had the quotation that was taken out of Isaiah 53 with the words, real love printed across the top. And each time that a soldier would stop him, he handed over his ID card and the flyer. And because the quote came from the Hebrew scriptures, the soldiers usually asked him about it. And after several months, Johanna realized that his feelings towards the soldiers had changed. I was surprised, you know, he said. It was a process. But I didn't pay attention to that process. My older feelings were not there anymore. I would pass the same street, see the same soldiers as I did before. But now, I find myself praying. Lord, please let them stop me so that I can share with them the love of Christ. Church, I read this list and I'm often tempted to skip over this chapter because I read this list and I see places where I have failed. I look within the context of my home. My son does something. My daughter does something else. We're getting ready to go to church and then it's poop here and vomit there and whole outfit. You know, I deal with my wife and I'm talking to her and, you know, a word comes out out of anger and out of frustration or I see someone else who's doing something, you know, wrongly and I'm like, well, you know what? There's this coming as opposed to being excited and praying like this pastor to see change possible and love extended. If you want to see how well you're doing in the love chapter, how well you're doing in the department of actually living out the word of love, if you want to, you know, take inventory so that one day you can stand before God and he cannot say to you, I'm sorry, I don't know you. I'm sorry, you've got nothing in your account when it comes to this aspect of love. Then do this. Substitute your name every time you see the word love in this chapter. 
Brian is patient and kind. Brian does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude. Brian does not insist on his own way. He is not irritable or resentful. Brian does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Brian bears all things. Brian believes all things. Brian hopes all things. Brian endures all things. You try doing that like me, and you're going to get discouraged. You're going to say, man, I've got a long way to go. I've missed the mark, okay? I'm not trying to step on your toes. I want us to take inventory, and I'm doing the same. Now, here's the great news, the beautiful news, the incredible news, is that this may not be the description of love that you right now have, but this absolutely is the perfect portrait of the love that you have been received by Jesus Christ. It's his portrait. If you could take the name of Jesus and put every place that you find the word love, then you're going to catch a whole different glimpse. You're going to see the gift that you've been given. Jesus is patient and Jesus is kind. Jesus did not envy. Jesus does not boast. Jesus is not arrogant. He is not rude. Jesus does not insist in his own way. Jesus is not irritable. He is not resentful. Jesus did not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things. Jesus believes all things. Jesus hopes all things. Jesus endures all things. He's the only one who can truly fulfill the perfect calling of what love does. He is the prism that breaks down love into its constituent parts and shows you way more clearly how it lives. He is the perfect rainbow of love. That is our love, our Lord. Rather than get discouraged at your own shortcomings, could you cast yourself upon him? Would you stand with me this morning? today let God do his work in your life by transforming you ever more into the presence into the likeness into the image of his son through the power of his Holy Spirit if you look at your relationships in your home in your family your neighborhood your work and you see that you failed in these areas could you just spend some moments asking God for his forgiveness? Could you repent and seek his presence? If you've never felt worthy, if you look at this and see all the places that you have failed, well, reality check, spoiler alert, you have. All of us have. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are sinners who have gone astray. All of us desire, require to experience the love of God. Maybe you're hearing these words and seeing, I am so far away from this that I just need a revolution in my life. Maybe you're a person who has not come into a relationship with Jesus, the embodiment of what love is. And today I invite you to just say a prayer with me and begin a journey. Step into a relationship with him and allow his definition, his example 
his acts to wash over you, redeem you, and change you. If you've never said yes to the Lord and invited him into your life, then will you just pray this prayer with me? Say, Lord, I need you. I want love such as this. I want to love like this. But first, I want to receive this kind of love. Forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me of all that's wrong. You were perfect. You lived, you died, you rose for me. And because of that, you empower me to receive and to act in love. In Jesus' name, amen. If you pray that prayer, I definitely want to connect with you. If it's the first time you do it, if you're reconnecting your life and recommitting your heart to Jesus, I want to encourage you. I'm going to invite Sam to come on up and be available at the altars to just pray. John, could you help him out? Janet, if you could also help. If you want prayer for anything, I want you to take a moment, just just spend some time with the Lord and commit to him and pour out to him where you have failed and where you hope to grow in the area of walking out in love. Because as you step out of these doors, as you live life among each other, love is going to make the difference. May the love of God, the grace of our Lord, and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit be with us today and forevermore in Jesus' mighty name. God bless you.